Welcome to another episode of Electables. I'm Deb Chubb, and this podcast is sponsored by Indiana Women's uh, Title IX that was enacted in 1972 and is celebrating its 50th birthday this year. And we are just incredibly lucky to have um, really a very rare expert on this topic joining us today. So Bonnie Morris is a, um, is a professor at University of California at Berkeley, um, has taught at George Washington University, Georgetown University, and um, is the author of 19 books um, and is a historian uh, and an archivist uh, and, of course, an author. And um, her latest book that we are really interested mostly in today is called, What's the Score? I'm going to show you a little picture of it. There it is. Um, and uh, it's just a terrific read uh, and a great historical um, timeline and much more, really um, a great memoir about um, your experience teaching in college, teaching um, gender studies and what's it called? Athletics and gender? Mm -hmm. Yes. So great. So today um, it's all about um, Title IX. And so uh, your timeline in here is really amazing. And, and I mean, interesting, you can tell you're just a superb archivist because you select these dates in such a great way that really paint um, an interesting uh, and, you know, convoluted history of Title IX. So, and of course, I just want to start with the first one, which is before Title IX, um, fewer than 300,000 girls participate in varsity athletics in high school, fewer than 32,000 compete in college athletics. Uh, and those who do uh, are receiving less than 2% of college athletics budget. Uh, and then the next year, this is passed. And I do have to do a shout out to Birch Bot, who's from Indiana, one of a few great people we had from Indiana uh, who really led this uh, charge in the Senate. And so we're incredibly proud of that. Um, so, uh, so Bonnie, um, and I know that you're known by uh, Dr. Bon, is that right? So and, and that's a great name. So I've picked out some dates that I think are important in the timeline. But I'd love it if you kind of just would give us a little bit more background first, and you know, what are the what are the points in time and the parts of this history that you think are the most important? Sure. Hi, uh, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Hi to everybody in Indiana. Of course, my book is from Indiana University Press, uh, and I've done another book with Indiana University Press called "Revenge of the Women's Studies Professor." Uh, so I'm uh, very keen on the state and. Uh, happy to be here today. Um, I uh, certainly wasn't a very outstanding athlete growing up. I was very much a young feminist, though, and I was uh, aware uh, that Title IX was a law that mandated equality and opportunity for girls and boys. Um, so I sort of carried around a copy of Time magazine that uh, gave the 37 words of Title IX law and presented it to my uh, school principal when I was in eighth grade, uh, more or less putting him on notice that I knew my rights. And essentially, uh, the law was uh, the result of many different uh, activists and committees' efforts to uh, address sex discrimination in academics. It was never intended to be a sports law. Some of the people who worked on Title IX were Bernice Sandler, uh, uh, Edith Green, uh, Patsy Mink, a combination of scholars and congresswomen. 
Uh, and they were looking at the way that uh, women faculty uh, experienced massive pushback, uh, the way that girls and women were kept out of academic subjects, uh, not even admitted to colleges, definitely uh, confronted at admissions with uh, really abusive language such as, why should we admit you? You're taking the place of a man. This went all the way from high school to law school, medical school, grad school. Um, and within the professions, women had no protection in terms of bias against, you know, uh, women getting tenure, promotion, equal wages. So uh, it never occurred to anyone that this would end up being an athletics provision. But in 1972, Title IX became part of the Education Act signed into law by President Nixon. And um, it basically says equality of opportunity in any activity um, uh, that a uh, the educational institution receiving a federal funding uh, cannot be, you know, subject to sex discrimination. And the federal funding line is really important because it definitely uh, allows for schools that don't get funding to be as discriminatory as they wish. And some schools, famously Bob Jones University, said no to federal money so that they could ban interracial dating and much worse. Um, there's exemptions for some single-sex schools and some religious schools, but in general, Title IX was intended to say you, you cannot ban women from the activities or majors or opportunities available to male students. And that included like at the high school level, girls taking shop, girls taking auto mechanics, um, in the uh, college uh, majors, girls being, or women admitted to engineering schools, architecture being uh, lab partners competing for grants, all of those things. And then it became really evident that this would apply to sports because 99% uh, of the athletic department budgets went to men's sports and women usually had a separate substandard gym. So the first thing we know is that immediately the law was challenged by um, football coaches that no matter how much it forced athletic departments to share their resources with women, football's budget could never be touched. And that was uh, introduced as um, the Tower Amendment. It was introduced by John Tower, uh, Senator from Texas. Um, and the joke was that there were three sexes, men, women, and football, because what uh, male athletes and administrators saw was a giant pie that had almost entirely gone to men that now had to be divided between men and women and they wanted to make sure that football um, did not give up any dollars to make space for women on the other side of that pie. From the very beginning, what that did was it set in motion a whole lot of arguments such as football brings in more money, it brings in publicity, it's favorable to the school's uh, brand, appearing in the news, more people apply to a school, more alumni donate when the football team wins. So just don't touch football. Uh, have some money set aside for women and all the other male sports. So it sort of put women in competition with guys 
in sports like diving, wrestling, swimming, um, golf, uh, gymnastics. And uh, that's been a pattern of hostility ever since. So that's number one. Number two, uh, it took all of the 70s for schools to get a sense of what they had to do to be in compliance. And they were given until the end of the 70s. So I went to a public high school for part of the late 70s. It was nowhere in compliance with Title IX. The guys were playing actual sports and the women were marching up and down to a record album with a male voice going, go you chicken fat, go, and other humiliating workouts. Um, schools were basically told by the end of the 70s, look, there's three ways you can be in compliance with Title IX. You can show you have a record of adding some more sports for women. You can show you are meeting the interests of the female students. Maybe they want to play ice hockey, or maybe they want to um, have a softball team. Uh, can you show that you're accommodating them? But the prong that most schools selected because it was easiest to prove on paper was something called proportionality. If a third of the students are women, a third of the athletic, athletic budget goes to women's sports. So notice that one of the reasons Title IX is, is passed is because of discrimination in admitting women to college. That means in 1972, there weren't a lot of women in college. So it was very easy for coaches to agree, yeah, you know, if women are going to be a third of the school, we'll set aside a third of the budget for them. It never occurred to anyone that in 2022, women would be 60% of undergraduate enrollment nationwide. There is no co-educational school in the world that gives 60% of its budget to women's sports. So that goal, that ideal was an easy fix at a time when it didn't occur to anyone that women would outnumber men in school. Um, okay, so by the time we get to 1982, uh, women are brought into the NCAA very reluctantly. The NCAA is hostile, but women eventually believe it would be a good thing to go in to get the kind of media coverage and um, income that comes with having your games broadcast. And uh, so this combined the old separate women's division of sports with men's NCAA and college play. Now, that integration sounds great, but in reality, most of the old women's coaches and administrators lost their jobs. So this is the price of integration. Combined with men, they gain access to the various goodies that men's sports enjoy, which women were supposed to have uh, also been enjoying since 1972, uh, but they give up control. And the uh, analogy I was offering was in the 40s and 50s, we have separate but unequal um, Negro League baseball. When Jackie Robinson is brought into the majors, that's seen as a very important moment in sports history to integrate white baseball. And then more and more black ball players follow in the old separate Negro Leagues collapse. What happens is black talent passes into white ownership and control. Before, 
you had completely black owned and controlled uh, baseball where the managers, the coaches, the trainers, the uh, spaces were very much um, black uh, employees. So the same thing happens when women come into the NCAA, they are not brought in as administrators, coaches, athletic directors. Uh, those jobs are men. And so control of women's sports passes into, um, you know, male uh, dominated uh, hires. And a lot of guys who were hired to coach women have no idea uh, what to do. They've never worked with women before. Some are overly friendly or abusive or um, uh, outright, you know, sexually aggressive and worse and uh, others are just not certain how to encourage um, women in into different kinds of professional capacities. So it's a mess. Um, then we move into um, a period of rapid escalation of uh, female ability where uh, it becomes obvious that women are doing really well. They soon begin to bring home more gold medals than men at the Olympics. Uh, there is a, uh, an immediate result from allowing women into academic and athletic power. And um, the, the fact is, although there's still sexism, homophobia, and backlash, America loves a winner. So everybody liked seeing women win basketball gold and ice hockey gold and the World Cup. And um, we have a generation of young girls and boys wearing the Mia Hamm jersey and sports writers following with interest the ascent of women athletes. Um, there's a lot of effort to take Title IX down. There's some conservative uh, authors who charge that this is just social engineering and that uh, women are being forced to play sports, that they don't really like sports, and it's all a plot by sad feminist lunatics. And um, at the worst moment of backlash, the Bush administration uh, passes a new prong of Title IX where you could send a survey around through email to ask women, are you really interested in sports or don't you care? And that would count as uh, making sure you were meeting women athletes' interests on your campus. And the results were very famously awful. Uh, everyone put that email in their spam box and no one answered. And so uh, school administrators said, oh, we didn't get any reply. Obviously, women don't care about sports. They wouldn't rather do, you know, theater and chorus, just like we said. That was overturned by uh, Joe Biden as vice president in a ceremony I attended at George Washington University's Athletic Center. So um, more recently, Title IX has gained considerable power as a uh, measure to halt sexual harassment and abuse in the education community. And the uh, rationale for so much attention going to um, sexual assault and stalking and misbehavior by faculty, if you do not feel safe in the college classroom, you are not getting an equal education. So uh, it it's a measure of considering that uh, a, a hostile climate is a form of sex discrimination. If your professor's coming on to you, if the guy in the next seat is coming on to you and you don't have anybody taking your experiences seriously, you go to the Title IX officer to express concern with um, 
unprofessional conditions. Uh, so it's a lot. It's a lot to put on one law, uh, but we are now far more literate as a nation in terms of the benefits of sport activity and the negative impact of um, women experiencing sexual harassment and trauma. Can so we talk about bit. that a little bit more? Because sure. um, that was, uh, I mean, and just from your timeline, you know, it's clear that the George W. Bush uh, era mm -hmm. um, really uh, had some real intentional, uh, imp, you know, attempts to just kill this, uh, kill these mm -hmm. rights. Um, and that maybe that um, part of that is because it did coincide, like you say, with this movement of women saying, you know, sexual assault, sexual harassment, hostile environment mm -hmm. is also a problem and it can also be redressed um, by Title IX. And we saw lots of those cases. Um, it, you know, all the things we knew were happening where um, young men were raping women mm -hmm. on campus and getting away with it because, you know, someone didn't want to impact this young man's uh, career um, and, and perhaps also his um, athletic um, mm -hmm. career. And of oh. course, there was the um, incestuous um, part about it being good for the school too. There, you know, if we, we can't, we can't charge this young man because he's bringing in a bunch of money for our college as an athlete. Uh, so, uh, and so we saw a lot of progression, I think, during those years on those kinds of complaints by women. Mm -hmm. um, again, we all, we knew it was always happening, but now suddenly someone discovered that there was this way to address it using Title IX. And, um, and then of course, like you talk about, then came the backlash. Well, you know, the other thing is that um, uh, athletics is a very public forum and intimacy of course is more private. And um, it's easy for a university to uh, estimate the value of an athlete to the public profile of the school and its record and commercial endorsements and then to turn around and doubt, uh, she said, he said, what went on in the privacy of their dating life. Um, and women have always been at a disadvantage. They're not perceived as bringing in the same kind of money. Uh, even if a woman's team is the top uh, record shattering athletic team, uh, that doesn't translate into fans packing the bleachers or school recognition or endorsement. So men have always had a higher monetary value and women have always had to uh, defend their sexual reputation in any kind of uh, trial or uh, justice hearing, which is so humiliating. A lot of women prefer not to bring charges. They don't want their sexual history raked over. They don't want to have to deal with the um, attitude that you brought this young man's career down. Um, these are all the same kinds of, you know, reasons that we see um, uh, women put on the defensive when they uh, challenge a better known celebrity male uh, for impropriety. And the Me Too movement really turned that on its head by openly um, uh, shining a light on some important Hollywood men and, and others. Uh, there's less of a stigma for a woman to come forward and say, yes, I was attacked. 
Uh, and it's such a universal experience. There are more women willing to support other women uh, for a very long time. Women distrusted one another and, you know, uh, accused one another of um, falsifying charges to uh, try to win some kind of um, attention. All of that has been a horrible part of the history of right, sexism. Right. Um, and then there's another piece, too, which is uh, that there's been a greater platform for addressing homophobia. There's a lot of athletes, male and female, who have su suffered brutal um, uh, bullying because of their LGBT identity and to uh, call out a coach for using abusive language is very risky if you want playing time or you want to be a starting player or your scholarship. Right. And um, it doesn't just affect uh, students. I taught at one school where an athletic director uh, was uh, bullied by a coach uh, for um being gay and uh, a lot of student athletes heard those remarks and only a few came forward. Um, but that uh, homophobic coach was removed. And so we're in a different era. Um, it's still very difficult for a lot of people to understand that they have rights because we're seeing them rolled back almost every day now, including in, in Florida and of course with abortion. But my experience uh, simply as um, an instructor, um, I would say that I've had a very fortunate career, but I've certainly observed uh, belittling remarks that indicate um, people were surprised to see a woman scholar. Uh, a couple of times I was told, you're in the wrong place. Uh, this is a, a military history classroom. And I would say, that's right, I'm the professor. I'm here to teach uh, women in war. Uh, or I was in the faculty lounge at Harvard where I taught for a year and a guy clearly could not contain himself, uh, bursting with curiosity to know who was this young woman. And finally he just exploded and he said, are you some kind of grad student? This is the faculty lounge. And I was like, yeah, I'm faculty, here's my card. <laughs> and then of course, embarrassed, he had to say, oh, well, you're, you look so young and pretty. I didn't think you could possibly be a professor. What does that mean that a woman <laughs> scholar is an in, in old hag? So the attitude you don't belong is part of what drives the um, environment where you can be made to feel, just be quiet, you're lucky to be here at all. You have a chance to play or you have a chance to get a degree or you have a chance to be uh, a young scholar and don't make trouble. And we've all learned to, in the words of John Lewis, make good trouble. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I think um, in the, you know, in the Trump administration, you know, we saw Betsy DeVos really mm -hmm. um, attacking um, those young women who were coming forward and mm -hmm. really demanding that men on campus be held accountable. Um, you know, it's all part of that kind of uh, toxic masculinity that was happening, I think, during that time and um, and really was getting crushed. So, I mean, it's great that that is over. Of course, we have other issues, like you mentioned. Um, you know, I live in Indiana where today or tomorrow, and I think today they're going to vote in a ban on abortion um, in our state legislature. Just don't get me started. So anyway, um, so it is it is bizarre. 
it is just, it is bizarre to watch. Um, and yeah. I guess I, at some point, I just want to kind of call it the Kavanaugh syndrome. Um, you know, when you talk about that, you know, women coming forward and just being, you know, berated and hassled and harassed. And, you know, Anita Hill, same thing, um, mm -hmm. you know, for the last generation, I guess. But, um, but I do, you know, I, I hope you'll, um, I want to move forward a little bit. I would love to spend a few minutes talking about the women's soccer team and their, yeah. their you know, their struggle and ultimate, hopefully, I mean, I don't think it's a done deal, but it's a, it feels like success um, uh, all that time. And I mean, that was just, uh, you know, they finally sued because they were being underpaid compared to male soccer players. And, um, and, the, and at the same time, we're winning world championships. Um, but still not getting anywhere. And then after that, you know, the court case that um, came out um, saying, no, you don't get the same. No, you're not as good. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I mean, <laughs> you just couldn't believe it. And, but then, of course, recently there was this new development of a possible settlement uh, in the case. Well, and, there's, um, there's two things I want to say about that. Um, there are very different and and uh, equivalently painful aspects to this uh, whole phenomenon that you could be the the best athlete in your field and be treated badly. Uh, another example of that uh, that I uh, speaks to the intersection of racism with sexism is the Rutgers women's basketball team in 2007 national champions and radio shock jock host Don Imus uh, said of this champion women's team, those are some, forgive me, nappy headed hoes. Of course that went viral and he lost his position, but it was an example that you could succeed as an athlete and quote, fail as a woman in the eyes of a racist, sexist, judgmental society. Um, that has long been the phenomenon for women. A, a man is the best athlete in the world. His masculinity is confirmed. It's assumed he'll get pretty girls, that he has proven his strength. Uh, a woman is the best athlete in the world, and her sexuality is questioned. Her femininity is questioned. Her appearance her appeal, her beauty, her, is she worthy of endorsements or not good looking enough? Is her hair good enough? It's horrifying. So that is not a new phenomenon. Uh, in terms of being told, okay, you're the best at what you do, but it's not the same as what a man does. Okay, that's um, the old equal pay for equal work argument. Uh, from the early 20th century, women were taken out of some of the uh, limelight salary and power opportunities of baseball by being put into softball. Not that softball is not a great sport, but the effort to create girls' rules or a female version of what guys do or a different shaped ball or whatever in lacrosse, uh, not checking and not wearing a helmet and supposedly playing a daintier game all of that was a way of uh, cementing male authority in a sport and keeping women lighter, feminine, less authentic. And have, unraveling that is uh, taken the entire 20th century. Uh, so the soccer team had to take on all of that. 
Are we being judged for how we looked? Are we being judged for playing a different game? Are we being judged for our sexuality? Are we daring to demand uh, money, which is seen as tacky in women? So part of what they had to face was this uh, unhelpful assumption that women play for the love of the game and therefore aren't concerned with an income to live on. I I think we all see from the tragic uh, trial of Brittany Griner that women have been playing overseas in appalling conditions because there aren't professional opportunities at home. Um, And the fact that men can graduate into six-figure salaries, and that does not happen for women, is a reminder that um, it does matter what women are paid when they're employed as athletes. Uh, Women don't live on zero. Um, If you protest, though, somebody seems to come out of the woodwork to say you should be grateful that you have, you know, a career playing at all. So we assume that men deserve enormous incomes, millions of dollars, and that women, you know, should basically live on a sponge and, you know, a couple of packets of soup. And I think that um, the other side of that coin, though, is the problem we have in the United States of uh, sports capitalism. Um, It's seen as a marker of the highest success if you have a shoe named after you. Uh, For women, uh, that's not provoking. Who is making those shoes? It's other women. It's girls. It's girls in Southeast Asia and South America. So should women have to hold themselves to a higher moral standard in terms of who is making money off of them and who's being exploited? Uh, or should women reap all the goodies that male athletes get in having a, a brand and a line of sportswear? That's a very interesting ethical issue um, that we talk about in my class. So the, the politics of money go in every direction. But yeah, I'm all for women's soccer earning as much as they deserve. Well, it is interesting because it, it looks like this settlement will require, like you said in the in our earlier part of our discussion, that um, there's a pie and that mm-hmm. um, if, you know, through FIFA, that if women make more, men will have to make less. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Yeah. There's got to be a way around that because that, you know, why why do we have to be evil money takers uh, yeah. from other people? Why oh, can't we all be getting what we deserve? Well, easy answer. Uh, there was never any plan for women to participate fully in society as equal citizens to men. Uh, when women uh, participate in public life, it Uh, some men, not all, experience equality as a loss because now they're competing with women as well as with other men and there's less to go around. And that's because the assumption was for so long in history that women would be uh, in private life, uh, in in the family or working for other people's families uh, or in the service industries, but not in the halls of power, not in government law, and uh, academia and so forth. Uh, When women come in as equal uh, competitors in the major public professional fields, uh, people are quick to say, we're not saying a woman isn't capable of being a good doctor or lawyer, you know, 
but uh, who's going to raise the children? So it's quickly flipped into how selfish of you to want a career. Of course, you're capable, but don't we need someone in the home? Honestly, I believed naively uh, that the computer revolution would even things out by making it possible for men to work from home and that men would take on a greater share of domestic responsibilities because they could run a business from the kitchen. Uh, that has not happened. Uh, instead, something else has happened, which is very interesting to me. And that's the empowerment of traditional conservative women as activists from the home uh, through the internet. And yeah. um, so a lot of changes that have occurred as a result of technology have empowered people in, in unpredictable ways. Uh, but um, what the sum up of what I just said before is that we have mostly seen women moving into opportunities that used to be restricted to men only, not men going into women's roles. And the reason, of course, is women's roles are seen as having less value. Right. We don't and see men. Paid. We don't see men rushing to teach kindergarten or, uh, you know, other jobs that are very low paid and are associated with maternalism. Um, and uh, in fact, we have a real problem that we don't trust men to work with children because we have a more uh, transparent view of how much um, pedophilia has infiltrated the ranks of the clergy and youth coaches and camp counselors. So men men are being revealed to have um, abused positions of authority when they have worked with kids. For women, the idea that you learn and negotiate, uh, that's been a, a challenge for many, but really I remember from the 70s on, feminists taking assertiveness training. That sounds so old now, but that was like you took karate and you took assertiveness training. Those are two different things. One was, so you shouldn't be afraid to walk home at night and you should be able to defend yourself rather than staying in with the door locked. And you should learn to say, no, I don't think that's a, a fair deal for me. Or no, I, I need to know more about this prescription. I'm not just gonna take what you tell me to take doctor. Or no, I don't think uh, this, um, uh, office has met the needs of nursing mothers, you know? And for a lot of women, um, and one of the things I joked about uh, in that chapter uh, on healthcare in the Feminist Revolution book, uh, women who were dynamic activists and able to write letters to editors or uh, march in the streets were very intimidated by talking back to, let's say, a personal physician or asking questions about their own birth control. Um, we've been really socialized to respect the authority of the school principal, the doctor, the priest, or whomever. So in all these ways, there's been a gradual learning curve for women to be bring an informed approach to negotiating and questioning. That doesn't yeah. mean you have to be rude or, uh, you know, the very... Um, essentialist name calling that women will get when they ask a question is you're being bitchy and hysterical is it that time of the month yeah, uh, yeah. but it's not a biological um illness <laughs> to ask for equal pay 
Yeah, well, it's still hard. I will say mm -hmm. it's still hard. I work with um, Democratic women candidates running for state legislature. All over the state. And um, yeah, and so uh, and it's still hard to ask for money. That is the hardest part for women candidates that I work with is asking for money. Um, so uh, so it's still really hard uh, for, uh, for women to do that. And, you know, I, I, I try to bring this uh, up to them and uh, I wish I had a more concise way. But it was Abby Wamba's uh, speech at the uh, the uh, graduation at Barnard um, that she gave that um, I didn't. Oh, I didn't hear it at first. I saw it printed and I was trying to read it to my girlfriend and I was just crying. I mean, it was just so, so moving. Um, and, you know, I mean, to synopsize, it was I was standing there with these great male athletes we were all retiring, we were all being honored, and we were all gonna go off and do other things, except I was gonna make you know, a tiny fraction of the amount of money that these other athlete, male athletes were going to make. Mm -hmm. And then you know, she just does a terrific you know, introspection of what that means uh, and how we got there. Um, and uh, and so, of course, it is very exciting to to hope that the women's soccer team will prevail. Um, that was such um, and I'm sure it was a lot more for them for, than for me. But for me, even really just it felt like such a roller coaster ride, you know, just cheering that team on and just watching these extraordinary athletes out there, you know, playing this game and in such a terrific team, you know, working together with such, you know, such you know, unity and just support for one another um, and then um, doing everything. And I'm no, I know this has happened over and over again, like you say, um, with other athletes, the, you know, the, um, the Rutgers team uh, and other great athletes who have overcome so much um, to do so well um, and be the best in their field. And then to be told, well, yeah, no, really, you're not as good as mm -hmm. Um, it is just, um, it's too much to take. <laughs> it's just, it's just too much. So, um, so, but I want to ask you, I guess, you know, we, um, we are kind of running low on time and I don't, I know you're very busy. You got all kinds of things that you're working on, but I want you, um, I want you to tell me what you think the future of Title IX looks like. Wow. Uh, well, um, the first thing I want to caution uh, listeners or viewers uh, is to be vigilant when people say we don't need it anymore. Women are equal now. Now it's just reverse discrimination. You know, women have had like 10 minutes of one law that is a tool for mandating equal opportunity. We do not have an equal rights amendment. A lot of my students think we do. We don't. We don't have gender equality in the Constitution. I went door to door for ERA when I was a teenager and I heard shocking things from people uh, who were so hostile to the idea of female equality. I had doors slammed in my face. I was cursed. I had the Bible thrown at me. I mean, it was a lot. Um, we have this one uh, statute and it ends when you graduate. Uh, so I hear a lot of my students say, wow, we're equal until graduation. And then in the real world, ouch. So I think um, that phrase, equal until graduation, needs to be repeated over and over so that we question why 
uh, it's only in school that we should expect, uh, you know, a path to equality. Um, I think that we have to look at the the low percentage of women as coaches and administrators, that women are still not uh, athletic directors. Um, women do not have tenure uh, to the same degree. Women are the majority of adjunct faculty. I'm still adjunct faculty. I Most of my career, I have been, uh, you know, uh, lecturer status or what have you. Um, and in part, that's because most women's studies programs are programs rather than departments, and they have a smaller budget, and they don't have tenure lines. So you can explain why these things are, but it all adds up to we have not made an equal playing field. Um, in schools, we also uh, still have very little women's history in the classroom. We don't teach about the great women of the past and present. We don't support women um, in some of the STEM fields where uh, we really need to encourage more girls or to make sure they have access to grant proposals and internships that are paid and all of that. And um, I, I really think young people need to be empowered by knowing what their rights are. So I'm always shocked, no matter what class I'm teaching, I put on the board, here's the constitutional amendments, you really ought to know. 13, 14, 15, 18, 19, and 26. Nobody knows any of them. Those are six that are really good. Um, 13, slavery is overturned. Uh, 14, uh, the, you were born in this country, you have the same rights as any other citizen. 15, oh, what's the word male in the Constitution? Then it gives the freed male slave population uh, a the right to... To vote. Um, the 18th uh, prohibition is very interesting because people think it was passed by women, but women could not vote yet. Uh, so the 19th gives women the right to vote. And then the 26th says you can vote at 18, not 21. Um, none of my students are familiar with what these additions say about uh, power relations, gender, and race. So know what the rights are that you have. And I carry my constitution around in my uh, backpack. Yep, me too. Uh, I get my packet constitution yay. wherever I go. <laughs> the ACLU is very good at handing those out at rallies. Yes, yes. Um, and then finally, I would just like to say that um, uh, many, many schools are terrified of introducing women's history at the middle school level because they're afraid it's all about the body and sexuality. There's no reason you can't find an age-appropriate curriculum on great women uh, that satisfies everyone's concerns about, you know, modesty or propriety or whatever your anxiety. Uh, who are the inventors? Who are the engineers? Who was running for office when? Who were the civil rights heroines? Who were the women uh, who founded the schools that are still uh, educating women now? Uh, we need to really push to make sure that that's part of what's considered knowledge. Yes, I am um, just, and I know I'm late to the game, but yesterday I was just able to watch that HBO show uh, called The James. And, mm -hmm. um, and that is, again, another essential part of women's history mm -hmm. um, that needs to be taught um, to young women. Um, just, you know, women in Chicago who came together to help women who needed abortions when mm -hmm. it was illegal um, and uh, and what they went through 
providing that and and how yeah. many women's lives they saved mm -hmm. um, something like 11,000 abortions that they uh, were responsible for performing in just a few years um, mm -hmm. uh, just in Chicago um, and the lives they saved um, the women that didn't end up in the septic wards in, mm -hmm. um, in the hospitals uh, and not dying so again uh, excellent piece of history that um, I wished I'd known about uh, long yeah. before yesterday so um, so, okay, so the status of Title IX is, it's a tool, it might work, depending on the presidential administration in place at the time, um, and um, depending on how much money a university um, stands to lose um, yeah, by, uh, you know, altering their uh, devotion to male athletics. Well, what makes a difference, uh, unfortunately, is lawsuits, um, beginning with, you know, some of the uh, the case uh, Brown uh, versus Cohen in uh, 1993, where you have an individual who brings charges of discrimination. Uh, very few schools have been fined for being in violation of Title IX, but damages can be paid when there's uh, proof that discrimination occurred and the university did not take steps. So I think we'll continue to see that as a tool. Uh, you're correct that different administrations can weaken the reach of the Department of Education or the Office of Civil Rights. Uh, but the more that athletes know their, their rights, the more they can take steps to bring attention. And I think, although it's a mixed blessing, the internet is also a tool that you can have a campaign go viral instantly. Right, and unfortunately it kind of supports disinformation. Which yes, of course. And really yeah. sabotage, mm -hmm. um, you know, good good efforts. Mm -hmm. So, okay, and so good. And there's the future as well. You talk about the future and I think as the lawsuits, and of course the, the future hopefully will be translating Title IX into an equal rights amendment um, so that um, women uh, have the same uh, entitlement to fair, mm -hmm. Wages, fair opportunity, even after they graduate from college. Yeah. <sighs> so much to do. So much to do. Uh, and I will tell you, of course, you know, my, my, uh, you know, keeping my eye on the prize. And that is that there has to be women uh, representing people. Yes. And um, until that happens, uh, nobody's going to vote for anything good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, that's, of course, why I do what I do. So, um, and, um, and I just can't tell you how you know, excited and, and how much I admire what you what you do. And uh, it's just been just a thrill to be able to chat with you about all this and uh, learn more about it. And I've got um, several more books of yours that I apparently need to uh, get a hold of and read because I've really enjoyed the book set of yours that I really have read. And I certainly recommend your book to anybody. Um, it's a wonderful read. I love the I love the I love the approach of kind of a memoir of your teaching experience in this field. And uh, how Title IX has really wrapped around that experience. Oh, well, the book is, again, called What's the Score? Uh, and you can get it from Indiana University Press. Uh, the imprint is Red Lightning. It just came out in June. And uh, I hope everyone will get one and uh, bring me to your campus as a guest speaker. Wonderful. Oh, that's it. Yeah. So I, you know, now that you said that, I, you know, I love uh, organizing those sort of things and I might have to might have to, you know, get you out again. So anyway, thank you so much, Dr. Bond. Um, You're just very welcome. A total pleasure. I'm a complete fangirl. 
So um, uh, thank you again for doing this and good luck. I know you've got lots of things on your uh, calendar and you're going to be super busy talking about this. Um, and um, we need to keep, I think, talking about turning Title IX into the Equal Rights Amendment. Okay. I think that, you know, that's such an obvious solution um, All right. to this, this problem. So, all okay. right. Thank you. Thank right. you. And I